Hey, as Larry said, my name is Nate. I get to serve alongside and under Larry, our lead pastor. I'm also a husband, dad. I've met many of you, and I'm grateful to be here. And uh, in about three weeks, my wife and I, along with our three oldest kids, are going to be going from New Albany, Indiana, to Rocky Mountain National Park. And uh, we're looking for somebody to watch our two-year-old. And Pastor Larry, if you're okay with that, I'd like to leave her with you uh, for about about 11 or 12 days. It pays very, very well. And, um, and we're going to get in a car and travel 1,200 miles. Now, the first question you might be asking is, why in the world would you do that to yourself? Why, why would you travel 1,200 miles um, to Colorado National Park? Because you are going to incessantly hear the question, are we there only 1,217 times we're going to hear that question, and we're going to inevitably uh, go to gas stations, fill up the car, and bathroom breaks, and some, uh, one of my kids is going to say, hey, I don't really need to go. We're going to prompt them to go. They're not going to go. And then nine miles later, they're going to say, I need, I need to go to the bathroom. And I will say, hold it till we get to Colorado. And wh- why, why would we do that? Well, here's why. There's a family that's driving up from Phoenix. They're going to meet us at this particular park that we've made reservations with, and they get us and we get them. And their boys, their four boys, uh, play well with our kids and they enjoy each other. And we're on the same page, like parentally, philosophically, theologically, and we're going we're gonna to swim in lakes and rivers and waterfalls and we're going to see wildlife, hopefully not too close. And uh, we're going to uh, have s'mores at night. We're going to have talent shows. We're going to sleep in late and we're going to go to bed late and we're going to make our food. We're going to hike. We're going to do all these things. And there's an eagerness and anticipation about that time. So I can unplug, no social media, no email, no phone, no text, just my family and another family and we're going to rest. And I'm, I'm looking forward to that time. And so it makes the trip worth it makes the 1,200 miles, it makes the incessantly asking, are we there yet, and possibly some frustration. It makes it worth it when, when we arrive there, and that's the eagerness will be finally fulfilled as I drive into this park, and we'll be there for eight or nine days. We're talking about that this morning. No, not camping, not Colorado National, Rocky Mountain National Park in Colorado, but we're talking about a future home, a heavenly city, a heavenly country that we look forward to which enables us to endure what we go through in life. This passage, Hebrews 11, speaks about what it means to be a believer and follower of Christ who walks through life with sincere, courageous faith. And this chapter starts out with this roll call of patriarchs and even some matriarchs of of the faith. You've got Abraham, you've got Jacob, you've got Joseph, you've got Rahab, and you've got Moses. And all of these people followed God with a simple belief they longed for and looked forward to with great anticipation and eagerness, the heavenly city. And often when we think about the Christian life, we think about the Christian life only in terms of what happened as a past event. I made a decision to believe and follow Jesus Christ. Or we think about the doctrine of justification. The doctrine of justification has this imagery of a courtroom where you have the Father as this judge who has to, because he's bound by his character and his personhood, he has to punish sin. He's holy and pure and righteous, and we are there in the courtroom as the accused, and you have a prosecuting attorney, and you have a defense attorney, and the prosecuting attorney has done an impeccable job of bringing all these accusations against us, and the truth is we are guilty. Everyone in this room stands guilty before a holy and righteous 
God and the Father, the judge, is about to take the gavel and smack the bench and declare us guilty whereby we are going to receive the just punishment because of our sin. But then we have a defense attorney, right, who comes to our aid and tells and appeals to the Father, I will intervene and take their punishment. I'll take the penalty that they deserve. And so instead of the Father, the holy righteous judge, smacking the gavel and declaring us guilty, he declares us not not guilty on account of someone else who has been our substitute. Praise God for the truth of justification. Something that happened, we were declared righteous, innocent, not guilty on account of someone else. Now, there's lots of people in the room today, and I don't for a second think that everybody in the room is a believer in Christ. And you've yet to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus where you have understood that you need healing and you need to, you need to be forgiven of your brokenness, forgiven of your sin. God stands ready to forgive us. We are more sinful than we ever imagined, but we are more loved and treasured than we could ever fathom. God, in his love for you and in his mercy, sends his only son so that we could believe and trust in him and be forgiven of our sins and have hope and joy that will not be fulfilled in this life, but in the life to come. The main point of this passage that I want to impress upon your heart is that God calls his people to embrace his promises, though their complete fulfillment lies in the future. God calls every man, woman, boy, and girl who is a believer in Jesus Christ to embrace his promises, though their complete fulfillment will not be realized in this life. Let me read Hebrews 11, verses 13 through 16. For us, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus made it, make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had an opportunity to return, to go back. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, in light of all the things that the writer of Hebrews has said thus far, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. This is God's word to us. This passage describes the the end of a journey for a Christian. Verse 13, they all died still believing, but they had not received all the things that their faith had been promised. You think about um, that first word in verse 13, these all died in faith. I think these is probably specifically referring to Abraham, though others as well. And this verse might seem to convey disappointment, even tragedy. Abraham spent his whole life trusting in God. Such and such a person trusted in God, had faith in God, had confidence in God, but they did not get all that was promised to them. Abraham spent his life trusting in God, longing for a home of his own, a land that would be called his own, descendant as numerous as the stars of the heavens. And he got one part of that promise given him his son Isaac, and yet he died not receiving all of the fulfillment that was given to him in this promise. How discouraging. But if that is what our faith is only about, hoping, hoping only to be disappointed due to unfulfilled hopes, then what a disheartening, devastating message 
Christianity is, but that's not the message of Christianity. Christianity teaches that we're not to be focused on the here and now, but on the life to come. This is what Paul says in Colossians 3, verse 2. Set your mind on heavenly things, not on earthly things. Why would he say that to the saints in Colossae? Why would he say that? Because the saints, brothers and sisters in Christ, have their hopes and their dreams and their joys rooted and fixed in earthly things. And Paul says, no, 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 no. You are heaven-bound. Set your affections and your hopes and your dreams and your joys in heavenly things. It's the same thing that Jesus prays in the heavenly prayer in Matthew chapter 6, as well as Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 20. And these truths, they confront a teaching that I think is prevalent in the church today. Trust in Jesus, and He's going to make your life better. Maybe a better husband, dad, grandparent, wife, mom, neighbor, worker. He'll help you have less stress. He'll help you lose weight. Come to Jesus, and he's going to help all the things your gravity take its toll upon you. It won't really matter. He's going to grant you health. And all those difficulties that characterize your life are going to be few and far between. And we need to remind ourselves with the theology of remembrance. We need to remind ourselves that Jesus has said, in this life, you are going to have trouble, hardships, difficulties. To be a Christian means to be an alien, a pilgrim, a sojourner, a stranger, to not fit in at times, to deny what you want over against what Jesus wants, a life of struggle. To be a Christian means that we understand that we're, we are no longer the boss, but he is. We surrender our will to him. To be a Christian means that we have a loss of consumer religion. Following Jesus is about sacrifice rather than personal gain and service rather than power. There's a loss of pride. There's a loss of times of health and wealth and comfort. To follow Christ means that we give up material comforts or at least should be willing to. The loss of power and coolness and cultural respectability. Following Jesus in many ways means that there's a commitment to live in a manner that's uncool and politically incorrect and just plain weird at times. We want to embrace His promises, understanding that though the complete fulfillment is not going to be realized in the here and now, they one day will be. They one day will be. And it means in the midst of hardship and difficulties, we have peace. Right? We say these things and it almost becomes a cliche. How can such and such a person have peace in the midst of adversity? Well, they have what Paul says in Philippians chapter 4. They have the peace of God which transcends or surpasses all understanding. How can we have a joy that's not contingent upon circumstance because our joy is rooted in Jesus? That does not change. He's immovable. So God calls us to embrace His promises, though the complete fulfillment of His promises are not going to be realized in this lifetime. So why are these individuals in Hebrews 11, why are you filled with joy and peace and comfort at times because of what the certainty of what lies ahead? By faith, we enjoy the things promised in the life to come. The writer of Hebrews says that we are, in verse 13, strangers and exiles. It's a direct quote from Genesis chapter 23, verse 4, when Abraham is buying a plot of land for his wife who has passed away, Sarah. And he's buying it from the Hittites, and he says, I am a sojourner and a foreigner. Or another way to describe it, exile or stranger. Exile is a negative word used to describe an outsider. It's not the sort of word that a person would want to 
used to describe himself. It's a word that doesn't merely describe a person from another place, but rather a person that does not fit in. Do you ever feel like, as a Christian, you don't fit in with your high school buddies or with the conversation at the water cooler at work or when you're talking about social issues or talking about life or marriage or family, when you're talking about and giving your perspective of life and you say, this is what's wrong. Do you ever feel like, I just don't fit in? I'm at odds with culture. Do you know why you don't fit in? Because you don't. You don't fit in. That's part of your identity as a Christian. We are an exile. We are an outsider and we do not belong. We're a stranger. It's a word that means and describes people who are passing through to a destination somewhere else. It describes a person who applied for temporary lodging in an inn because they did not have a permanent residence. We live between two worlds. We're in this world. We're not of it. But we long for and anticipate a heavenly country, a better city. Now we know that, but it's still hard to embrace in our hearts. So let me give you a couple examples that I think kind of give us a glimpse into what the writer of Hebrews is saying. When two people get married, they enter into a new world, right? And you're like, that's right. They better. That single guy can't act single anymore. And if he does, come talk to Pastor Larry and he will solve your problems. Or a single gal can't act like she's single, right? They enter into a new identity. Husband and wife. When a couple has a baby, they remain in their old world, same marriage, same friends, same interests, but things change, don't they? They're now parents, and they become friends with parents who are mentors and guides, and their new world, in a sense, kind of alienates them from their old world. There's a new identity, mom and dad, or median-age parents who enter into a season where they got to take care of of aging parents who can't take care of themselves. They're entering into a season where in a very real way, their season alienates them from the comforts and conveniences they had in another life because they have a new identity. I'm now a caretaker. Being a Christian is greater than any other change that the world brings. You're a son and daughter of the King and this world is not your final residence. You are here temporarily. We want to have a loose grip on the allegiances and things of the world and a tight grip on Jesus because that's where we're headed and that's where we'll be forever. So here's a question, a little self-assessment. A friend of mine asked me this question. He wrote it down in a book and I find it very irritating when people ask me things that I can't shake off that God uses to convict and encourage me. He says this, one of the ways that we understand if we're growing, that we're growing in spiritual maturity is to answer the question, do you long for heaven? And we say, yes, I long for heaven. I long to be with God in heaven. When's the last time you thought about heaven? Last time you thought about the return of Christ? For most of us, for most of us, we're focused on the here and now. But God calls you and God calls me, if you are one of his kids, a son and daughter of the king, God calls us 
to embrace His promises, though the complete fulfillment of His promises lie in the future. That's what the text says. Abraham and others were strangers and aliens and exiles and foreigners looking for a homeland. Now remember, why was the book of Hebrews written? By the way, it was written as a sermon. So it'd be appropriate today, I could say, hey, this morning our text is Hebrews chapter 1, Uh, all the way through chapter 13. And this is what they did. They sat and they listened to this joker read 13 chapters. Now, we will not do that because you're hungry and I'm hungry, but that would be a long sermon. This is a sermon. And why was it written? It was written to persuade Jewish Christians to not abandon Jesus in favor of pursuing the law and going back to Moses. But what does the writer of Hebrews do? He walks through chapter 1, chapter 4, chapter 7, chapter 9, chapter 10, chapter 11, and he comes to who? One of the patriarchs of the faith, Moses, and he says, Moses chose to be identified as an exile and a stranger over the fleeting pleasures of sin, over the comfort and the conveniences that living in Pharaoh's household brought him in exchange for being a follower and a believer of God. Abraham did the same thing. Abraham's faith was made known by the choices that Abraham made five different times. It says, by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith. Faith makes itself known by our choices. And Abraham was no different. He was a temporary resident. He left the land of Ur. He left the land of Ur and did not think of himself in terms of his former residence, but the one where he was headed the heavenly country, the heavenly city. So again, is that true of Nate Milliken? Is that true of you? How do you think of yourself? What establishes your identity? Family background? Social class? Ethnicity? Profession of faith? And a particular allegiance to the school where you graduated? Your country of origin? We live and believe and go out into the world, not just as white people or Asian people or black people or poor people or rich people or UK grads or IU grads or Democrats or Republicans or Libertarians or who cares. Those are all descriptions of who we are, but they should not define us. They should not define us. We live and believe and go out into the world as believers and followers of Jesus, and that allegiance supersedes every other category and descriptor of our life. If all those descriptions determine your allegiance, you are going to be held back from living for the king of the universe because we are a son and a daughter of Christ first. We're on a pilgrimage. We're on a journey We're strangers and aliens, and we're headed towards the heavenly city. And our whiteness or our blackness, our riches, our poverty, our political affiliation do not compel us to have hope and certainty in the here and now. And they certainly don't propel us to have a heaven-oriented posture. Only Jesus does that. Only Jesus compels us in the midst of all of life's circumstances to long for and look forward to with great anticipation the heavenly city which is better. It doesn't mean that we get rid of all our allegiances. 
It doesn't get, mean that we get rid of all of the descriptions of who we are, but we need to recognize that all of our hopes and our joy and our peace and our dreams and our affections, they need to be rooted in the person and the work of Jesus and the life to come. So it gives us perspective of death and sickness and life and wealth. A Christian is headed home. And as Peter writes in 1 Peter 1, 3-5, we have an eternal blessing that is incorruptible, unfaded, imperishable, kept in heaven for you, guarded by God's power. Faith seeks a better home. It seeks a better home. So grateful that this is not it. So much brokenness and heartache and trials. Faith seeks a better country, a better home. And all that we experience in this life is a glimpse is a foretaste, a shadow, a, a signpost of what we will experience one day in heaven. So let me give you some examples. The fulfillment of watching your kids play and not bicker and fight and enjoy each other. Isn't there something good about that moment? Praise God. God, give us more of those moments. The beauty of a sunset or a sunrise and how time just seems to stand still. Or a husband and wife who care for each other in the latter part of the days of their marriage. Or watching your sports team trounce the opposing team. There's something good and God honoring about that and taking joy and fulfillment. But Jesus and his ways are not just better, they're infinitely better. All the fulfillment and the glimpse and are all a foretaste and a sign of the ultimate fulfillment that we are going to experience. So embrace his promises. Understand they're not going to be completely fulfilled in this life, but in the life to come. So giving you some positive examples, so let me give you some, some negatives. The emotional and physical exhaustion of seeing someone that you deeply love have their body ravaged by cancer. Or someone that you care for deeply who does not know you anymore because of the mental debilitating effects of dementia or Alzheimer's. The abandonment and hurt and devastation when a spouse says, I'm out. I don't want to stay here anymore. All of those point to the fact that we've been created for a place, a reality, where there will be no more abandonment. God, on account of his promises, says, I'm never going to leave. I'm never going to forsake. He says to cancer and Alzheimer's, you've gone far enough. You're not going to go any further. And we've been created to realize this life does not bring ultimate fulfillment. But Christ does. Embrace his promises Embrace his promises, though they are not going to be completely fulfilled here. All of these men and women in Hebrews 11 had lives that were not easy. But they were victorious from God's perspective. And this is the course that is set for us as Christians. The great rewards that we discuss in the Bible 
All the spiritual blessings oftentimes are not visible, and we don't actually get to experience right here many times. So what do we do? We root our lives in the gospel of Christ, to whether it's New Albany or Sellersburg or Georgetown or Clarksville or Jeffersonville. We root our lives in the person and the work and the hope and the joy and the peace that's found in Christ amidst all the hardship and heartache and brokenness and partial fulfillment, because we know God has promised us a heavenly city. And we long for that day. We long for that day. So what are we to do? We are to embrace his promises despite the fact that we are not going to receive complete fulfillment in this life, but in the life to come. Let me close with this event that happened 120 years ago in 1899. Two prominent men died. The first was Colonel Robert G. Ingersoll, who had a brilliant mind, who spent the overwhelming majority of his life dedicated to refuting Christianity. And he died suddenly. Uh, In fact, there are still lectures named after him at Harvard University. And he he died suddenly in 1899, and his bride was so grief-stricken that she finally agreed to have her husband's body removed from the house after it had been there days because of the adverse effects on their health that this dead body in the house was going to bring. And at the service, there was such a dismay and grief that the local newspaper commented on the despair and the discouragement present in the air at this man's funeral. In the same year, there was a man named Dwight L. Moody who also died. He had been declining in his health for quite some time. His family gathered around his bed. And on the last morning of his life, his son heard his dad say this, Earth is receding. Heaven is opening. God is calling. And his son, Will, said to him, Dad, you are dreaming. And Dwight said to him, son, I am not dreaming. And he slipped to and from consciousness in the minutes after. And then he whispered this ever so quietly. Is this death? It's not that bad. There is no valley. There is bliss and this is glorious. And his daughter, Emma, scurried over to his side and began to pray that God would heal. And here's what Emma's dad, Dwight L. Moody, said. Do not pray for that, Emma. God is calling. This is my coronation day. And I have been looking forward to this day with great anticipation, great eagerness. He did not live for the promises that life offers because they're short-lived and fleeting and uncertain. He lived for the promises of God and through Jesus was going to experience inheritance in heaven that is incorruptible, unfaded, and imperishable, kept in heaven for him. And so he could say with the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, the reward of eternal life, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, the future day. And not only to me, but also to all you have loved and believed in Jesus. You have to know those truths, not up here, but in here. You can't just know them cognitively, intellectually. you got to know them in your heart. But don't be tempted to think that it rests on you. Don't be tempted to think that it rests on your faith. 
Let me read this to you. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. Therefore, in light of everything I've said, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely to our hearts, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Here it is. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and seated at the right hand of the throne of God. What, what is the writer of Hebrews saying? Jesus understood the Father had given him a promise that there is only one way that sinful humanity can have a right relationship with me, and that is through the cross that you are going to endure. And what does Jesus do? He saw the joy on the other side of the cross, and he walks through all the persecution, all the alienation, all the hardships, so that you and I could be reconciled with the Father. It does not rest on the intensity of your faith and the knowledge of faith, but the object of your faith, who is Jesus and is immovable. Immovable. And as circumstances ebb and flow and the fickleness of our heart, do you ever have a weak faith, a fragile faith, a doubting faith, a disobedient faith, a hypocritical faith, an inconsistent faith? Aren't you thankful that God says, boy, I wish you were perfect? No, someone else was. And so we rest and embrace the promises of God knowing that Christ has fulfilled them and he will come through and be faithful and give to us what is rightfully ours because of our faith in him.